Glad to see you all here this morning. Uh, I wanted to mention, especially after uh, his gaffe during the announcements, that John Mark is working on a doctorate uh, degree right now. And uh, based on what I've seen today, he has a long way to go. Uh, it's a different doctoral degree, really. Uh, it's a PhD, not, not, in, uh, in, not in the MD. Uh, I think we're all grateful for that. But uh, uh, because of that, uh, we have the, the, the joy uh, of getting to journey together uh, over the next six weeks. During this season of Lent, John Mark is going to be working uh, hard on his dissertation, so I would ask uh, all of you to please be in prayer for him and uh, give him some words of encouragement along the way, as I clearly uh, have not done this morning. Uh, but please uh, keep him in your prayers as he's working towards that, uh, towards that degree. Uh, we are going to be studying and uh, talking about the season of Lent uh, for the next six weeks as we prepare our hearts and our lives for Easter. Of course, Easter is a joyous occasion. It's a time for us to celebrate uh, and a time for us to declare to the world that Christ is risen. And yet, during these six weeks, uh, we have preparation to make. Preparation in our own lives, preparation in our own hearts. And so over these six weeks, we are going to be working together to prepare for that moment. Lent is typically a season where we focus on a couple of different practices. Those practices, uh, namely, are repentance and fasting. And this is done so that we can prepare uh, not only within our own minds, but through our actions, uh, that we are also living a resurrected life, that we are mirroring the life of Jesus, that we have been transformed into the likeness of Christ. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, John Mark has led us in a, a great sermon series on who Jesus is. And one of those sermon series dealt with Jesus as rabbi. Uh, and Jesus as rabbi means that we are his followers, that he invites us to come and sit at his feet. And of course, to sit at his feet doesn't mean that we just sit and listen, although of course it implies that as well. But it also means that we are to do the things that Jesus does. And so as we prepare for the resurrection of Jesus, we prepare our own selves to live this resurrected life, this transformed life that begins to look more and more like the person of Jesus. Today we're going to focus our time on uh, reading in Luke chapter 4, and so if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn over there. Uh, Luke chapter 4 deals uh, with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, and uh, this temptation of Jesus uh, tells us a couple of things about Jesus. The first thing that it tells us is that it happens right at the start of his ministry, which is important because this is a foundational moment. In the, in the ministry and in the life of Christ. Everything that comes after this, he is preparing for in this moment of temptation in the wilderness. And that scene that we see, uh, as we read here in just a few minutes, that scene that we're going to see uh, unfold is Jesus refusing to give in to the power, to the desire of his own heart, and instead choosing to follow what God has ordered and, and uh, ordained for his life and his ministry. So let's uh, read together in Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 1,595 and find the same passage that we're going to be reading today. Uh, the words should also be on the screen behind me, and uh, there's this fancy app on the iPhone called uh, the Bible app, and you can also turn to it uh, there. Uh, so this is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus returned from the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterward Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, Since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread. 
Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms, for it's been entrusted to me and I can give it to anyone that I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil again brought him into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point of the temple. And he said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. And Jesus answered a last time. And he said, it's been said, don't test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. I hope you can sense the drama of this event, how, how the drama of this encounter that Jesus has after fasting for 40 days, that he is led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, into the wilderness to face these temptations. But of course, Jesus won't give in to them. I'd like to approach this text this morning from two different perspectives. The first perspective is to understand what this passage is doing in the Gospel of Luke, for us to look a little bit at the context and figure out what Luke is trying to tell us about who Jesus is. The the second context, I'll come back and I would like to connect this passage with the practice of Lent and the practice of fasting. Uh, This week we're going to focus primarily upon fasting. Next week uh, we'll look some at repentance. Uh, But I'd like to come back, uh, and, and that would be my second approach to this passage. So first up, in the Gospel of Luke, this passage comes on the heels of of an interesting story, the story of Jesus's baptism. Now in Luke chapter 3, we we see John uh, the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing uh, people for the repentance of their, uh, not for the, uh, to, to forgive their sins, but to change their lives, to change their actions, that they'll no longer participate in sinful behavior, but change and begin to follow God again. And so John is out in the wilderness, and he's drawing crowds to him, and suddenly the one that he has been anticipating and announcing, Jesus, comes upon the scene. And Jesus tells John that he would like to be baptized. And of course, John uh, would have none of that. He says, it's not you who needs to be baptized, Jesus. It's me. You should baptize me, for you are the one who's without sin. But of course, Jesus persists, and he uh, insists that he must be baptized. And so John baptizes him, and in that moment, the heavens open up. And a voice from heaven calls out, You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. At this moment, when Jesus is baptized, God announces to all those who are present listening to John's preaching that something special is happening here. It's not often that someone gets baptized and a voice shouts out from heaven while a dove descends and a bright light shines all around. We could try to reenact that. It probably would not go well, I would imagine. It's not often that this takes place. This is a unique announcement that God calls from heaven that something special is taking place with this Jesus. Jesus, in fact, is God's beloved. Jesus is God's beloved. From this point on, Luke transitions into a genealogy. Now, Matthew's gospel uh, puts the genealogy right at the start, but Luke saves it for this moment. He saves it for right after Jesus' baptism. And as soon as Jesus hears this voice from heaven, and as soon as the crowds are amazed, we hear Jesus' pedigree, his lineage. It's it's as if uh, John wants to give us his resume for why this matters, because God has just declared that something special is happening, and now Luke has to prove it. And so he goes through the generations, name after name after name, 
telling us just why this Jesus is significant throughout all of history. And that genealogy ends by Luke saying in verse 38 of chapter 3 that Jesus was the son of Adam and the son of God. This is significant. This is important because Luke is trying to help us understand that what this special announcement that God has made, that this is Jesus, God's beloved, why it matters for our lives and what it means for us. Luke wants us to connect the story of Jesus not only with the story of Israel, although he certainly wants to do that. He wants to connect it with the story of creation and, in fact, the story of who God is. See, Jesus becomes the second Adam. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, God is creating everything from, from nothing. He starts with nothing, and he begins to form and shape things, and they begin to have meaning, and we begin to understand where, how the world came into being, and all of a sudden, God interrupts every act of creation. And what does he say? He finds that it is good. Luke wants us to see that this second Adam is good. This is God's beloved, and he is good. But even more than that, it's not just God's beloved. This is the Son of God. And so everything in all of history has been leading us to this moment. Everything that we've seen throughout the story of the Old Testament into the New Testament, the Gospels, everything is leading to the person of Jesus. Jesus is God's beloved. It's in Jesus that God finds happiness. And as soon as we figure out just who this Jesus is, the son of Adam, the son of God, we encounter the wilderness scene. The scene we've read together this morning, the scene where Jesus is led by God's spirit, tempted by the devil, and refuses to give in to those temptations. I find it fascinating that this is the very next scene. Because we've just had a voice call out from heaven that this is God's son, that God is happy, that this is God's beloved. The people have witnessed this, and they begin to think something amazing is taking place here. But the very next story that we encounter, the very next thing that Jesus does, seems almost too human, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like the scene that you might expect when God announces and declares that something special is happening. Because instead of something special happening immediately, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And Luke includes a line at the beginning of the story, a line that helps us to see just how human this Jesus is. Luke says he's hungry in the wilderness. After 40 days, I think it's one of those no-brainer moments. Luke, don't you think that you could have just assumed that Jesus is hungry? You didn't have to say it. You didn't have to write it down. And yet he does. He includes the idea that Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, is hungry. And I find this very fascinating. I think it's brilliant by what Luke is trying to do here because certainly throughout history, the people have been waiting. They've been waiting for God to come on the scene. They've been waiting for God to show up in history. The people of Israel, we, we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. They're anticipating, they're expecting, they're waiting for someone to come and show them the way back to God, to bring them back into relationship with God. And all of a sudden, God makes an announcement. This is Jesus. This is my son. In him, I find happiness. And the people think, finally, it's here. Finally, the Messiah has come. And yet Jesus does a very un-Messiah thing. 
he goes into the wilderness and he fasts and he's hungry. See, typically when you think of a Messiah, you might think of a kingly figure, someone who's mighty, someone who's a conqueror, someone who's ready to take up the the battle to deliver the people of God. You might think of King David, a strong warrior. You might think of somebody who's prepared to do whatever is necessary to bring God's people back to God. But Jesus takes the way of meekness. He goes into the wilderness and he faces evil. He faces sin. He eventually will face death. Because the enemies that Jesus has are not the same enemies that we have. Jesus is doing something different than what we might expect. Because the people are expecting a kingly figure, someone to come to deliver them, to return Israel back to prominence. They're expecting somebody like a guy named Athranges. Can you say Athranges with me? We can do better than that. Athranges. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it or not. (laughs) They're expecting someone like Athranges. Athranges is somebody who lived just before the birth of Jesus. And Athranges was a a very strong, very tall person, a very big guy. And he had four brothers, and, and Athranges and his four brothers decided that they wanted to speed up God's plan in history. And so Athranges and his brothers, they developed a rebellion against the Roman Empire. They thought, if if God's not going to show up, we're going to help God show up. We're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to reinstate God's people. We're going to reinstitute the nation of Israel. And so Athranges and his brothers, they begin this rebellion, and they go to war against the Roman Empire. And yet Athranges' rebellion is quelled. Eventually, he is killed. The people are expecting somebody like Athranges, somebody who's willing to do whatever it takes to overthrow the Romans, to bring God's people back to prominence, to show the world that this is the true way to live. And they can't live how they've been living. They need to live according to God's purposes. The name Athranges is an interesting name. It seems to mean melon. I wouldn't advise that you name your child Melon. It's interesting, his name seems to not only mean melon, but it also seems to come from a folktale concerning a figure like this who who goes uh, and starts a rebellion. And in this folktale, the main character, the hero's name, means son of the cucumber. You haven't had a nickname until you've been named after fruits and veggies. But the people are expecting someone like a Throngees. They want Jesus to take up the mantle to go to battle. Someone who's big and strong. Someone who will help lead God's people. Help lead the whole world back to God's purposes. But instead, Jesus is in the wilderness fasting. And he's hungry. And he's facing temptation. And he's facing difficulty. And he's overcoming it. See, I think this is fascinating because what Luke is trying to help us see at the beginning of his gospel is that the enemies that Jesus is going up against, while they might not be the enemies of the Roman Empire, they might not be the enemies of of people who, who don't think that Jesus is God's son, Jesus is going up a far greater enemy. Sin. Jesus is facing off against the enemy of sin. And what we come to find over the course of this gospel story is that Jesus is going to defeat that enemy. And of course, that is what we are preparing for, the moment of resurrection, when sin and death are once and for all defeated. 
I like the way that uh, one uh, commentator, Albert Barnes, talks about this scene in Luke's gospel. He says these words. He says, How foolish for the Son of God, who has all power to be starving in this manner, when only by a word he could show his power and relieve his wants. How foolish indeed, isn't it? Because Jesus is showing us not what it means to conquer enemies, but what it means to live a resurrected life. So that leads us back to the practice and the season of Lent and fasting. During these next six weeks, we're going to be talking about this particular season in the, in the Christian calendar, the season of Lent, the season of preparation for that Easter moment. This, uh, this season reminds us that we need to live into the life of Jesus, that we need to become transformed into his likeness, that we need to be more and more like Jesus. And in order for us to do that, there are things in our lives that we need to repent of, things that we need to turn away from, things that we need to to fast from, to say that we're giving these things up and we're replacing them with our soul devotion and trust in God. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. Of course, this story mirrors the story of the people of Israel, the people in the wilderness for 40 years, changing their hearts and their lives so that they can once again enter into the promised land as God has promised them. But first, they need to prepare themselves. They need to be ready for what God has called them to do. Jesus mirrors that story. And of course, during this season of 40 days, we mirror the story of Jesus. We decide that we are going to set aside the things that take us away from who God is and replace them and focus solely on who God is. To change our hearts and our lives, to begin to look more and more like the image of Jesus in our world around us. Eugene Peterson, in the message version uh, of this story, writes these words in verse 8. Jesus is quoting scripture here, and he says, Worship the Lord your God, and only the Lord your God. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. When I read that, I loved that translation, single-heartedness. That's what this season is all about, is singly setting aside everything else and focusing only on the person of Christ. How can we be transformed into his image and likeness? And Eugene Peterson uses the word heart rather than mind. Because it's come, to, uh, it's come to be that our heart represents the wholeness of our being, all that we are. Our mind doesn't represent all that we are, but our heart does. Single-heartedly, we focus solely on God. May we be single-hearted in our devotion to God. May we be single-hearted in the things that we do and say, the things that we act upon in our lives. May we live as Christ did and be transformed more and more into his likeness. Today I'm going to encourage us to contemplate, to think about the action of fasting. Next week we'll talk some about repentance, but this week I'd like us to think about fasting. During Lent it's a common practice for us to give something up, to say that I'm no longer going to participate in this uh, action or this activity during this season because I would prefer instead to focus my, my time and my attention on Christ. So during these 40 days, it's, it's a common practice to give something up. But the encouragement is not just to give something up, but to make sure that the focus returns back to God in that moment. That when we give something up, we replace it with following God more closely. So today, uh, and in fact, during the course of the the rest of this series, I'm going to be inviting some of you to share uh, some things with the church, 
and uh, I've invited Russell uh, to share with us this morning, so I'm going to invite him up to the stage now, because uh, it's one thing to talk about this, but it's another thing entirely to live it out. And many of you live out this preparation for the resurrected life in so many ways. And so during this series, I'm going to invite us to share some thoughts and some words together, and I've invited Russell to do that today, and he's uh, been generous to be my guinea pig, the first up, the first to get to go. And uh, he and I are going to have a conversation that I'm excited for you guys to listen in on uh, about what it means to fast and to give something up uh, for the sake uh, of following God more closely. Russell, uh, it is fairly common, I think, for people uh, during this season to give something up. Uh, and uh, the examples that I thought of that I've, I've heard friends uh, talk about over the past uh, couple of years are things like social media, uh, replacing social media with maybe scripture reading. Uh, maybe they might give up uh, sweets or, or coffee uh, or, or sodas. And uh, this is an action of, of trying to become more healthy, uh, healthy physically or healthy spiritually. Uh, and so uh, I uh, have discovered over the course of the past couple of months that you have given something up as well. Uh, you've given up sweets recently. And so I'm interested why, uh, why you gave up sweets and when did you give that up? Are we on? Are we good? Microphone number 11. Hello. There okay. We well, not just recently. I gave up sweets and desserts in about the summer of 2017. Um, and I went several months, almost a year, without any sweets, and I have to confess, uh, recently I cheat occasionally on birthdays, etc. But primarily, I was thinking of something to give up. I just wanted to make a change in my life, and I know sweets is kind of silly, if you will, but um, I just wanted to make a change. And so primarily it was for health, lose a little weight, get in a little better shape, um, but I didn't give up chips and salsa. So just, just sweets. I mean, chips and salsa are basically gospel yes. in Texas. Okay, so you, you gave this up in 2017. Uh, you gave up sweets. It was primarily a health concern, uh, primarily something to, to uh, become more of a healthy person, a healthy uh, being. Now, today we read The Temptation of Jesus, uh, and Jesus was tempted. So I'm interested also in finding out what tempts you to return back to sweets. Well, as we all know, sweets are everywhere, especially in the Church of Christ, right? We have potlucks, we have showers, we have everywhere you go, there are sweets. Of course, our life group has some of the best cooks around in our life group. Of course, Reba's off the charts with her cooking. So thankfully, she doesn't make as many sweets and desserts as she has in the past. Um, but I have to say, uh, our life group and those gatherings really hadn't been a temptation because our life group is so supportive of what we all try to do in our lives. But I would say my business travels and business meetings where you have snacks and sweets laying around or even business meals, that's always the temptation is, hey, we're all gonna share, we're all gonna have sweets, coffee, whatever together. So that's probably been a bigger temptation than the life group itself. But um, So there is temptation there because it's all around. But again, to me, sweets is a, a minor thing, but it's, but it's the principle of the thing that you've given something up. Yeah. Uh, Church, I I want you to notice uh, that response was grounded in community. Uh, He said life group hasn't been much of a temptation because there have been people who have been supportive during that. Uh, And so I'm I'm taking off my interviewer hat and I'm returning back to my preaching hat. Uh, Community is necessary for this. 
Uh, we need to support each other, uh, whether it's uh, repentance or fasting. And so thank you, Russell, for sharing that. Now, your reason for giving this up was not spiritual, primarily in nature. Uh, but I am interested, is there any way that you can see to connect the act of, of giving up sweets uh, over the past year or two years uh, with the spiritual practice of Lent, uh, of fasting, of repentance? Well, sure. I mean, I think, I think God gives us choices, and hopefully we make good choices. Um, so no matter what you give up, whether it's sweets or, or razor blades or whatever it may be, whatever you give up, I think there's a certain discipline and a sacrifice associated with that. And so I think God is leading us there. God is giving us those choices. He's putting those things in our lives. And I think that's how I've kind of connected uh, this discipline. Yeah. One thing that I've, uh, uh, our elders have been uh, saying this fairly consistently uh, recently, uh, but you cannot separate uh, parts of your lives. And so while this decision was primarily a physical uh, health decision, uh, our physical health affects our spiritual health as well. And so you can't separate those things as if they're different. Uh, they are uh, interwoven and interconnected together. Uh, so what have you learned about yourself during this practice of giving up sweets? Uh, has there been anything that you've discovered that uh, is good or bad about this? Well, I mean, I, I guess first of all that I could do it. Um, and I think after the first few weeks or months or so, it, it really was not an issue. I mean, it, I didn't even really think about it. Um, but I think probably more that I've learned from this is there's so many more important things than this. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, again, I'm saying it again, sweets is kind of a minor issue, but uh, I guess it could be serious depending on um, who it is. But, but to me, it's, there's more important things in life than sweets. But it, again, brings me back to that discipline. Yeah. And have you learned anything about God? Well, certainly. I mean, I think, um, I think God is inviting us continuously to be closer to him. And I think if giving something up, no matter what you choose to give up and for how long you choose to do that, if that can bring you back to the cross and if that can bring you back to his mercy and his grace and forgiveness, uh, then that's wonderful. Um, and if it reminds you and brings you back to your faith and your new, renewed focus— on him, I think that's I think that's what we're called to do. Yeah. Would you guys give Russell a hand for being my guinea pig and sharing? I wanted to make sure and include a moment like this because uh, I, I think there these conversations, these uh, lessons that we might learn from one another, are indicative uh, of a couple of things. I hope that you heard uh, Russell speaking of his journey and, uh, and how important it has been for him, uh, even with something so minor, that he has found a way to connect that practice with learning about who God is. Uh, and so during the season of Lent, when we fast, when we turn away from something and replace it with God, we have the opportunity uh, to learn about ourselves and to learn about our Creator who uh, has made us. And hopefully, uh, through that practice, we are being transformed and changed into His likeness. Uh, as we close today, we're going to uh, do as we always do. We're going to return back into worship. And as we do, our elders are going to gather around the sides of the room. And they are here today to pray with you, uh, to pray over you, to encourage you. And so if there is something that you are thinking about fasting from, uh, if there is something that you need to repent of, if there's an encouragement that you could receive from them, please come and visit them th- during this time. 
but I also want to invite you during this time uh, to maybe go back to the back of the room. I have set up a, a little bulletin board uh, back there, and you can write down something that you have chosen to fast from uh, during this season of Lent. Now, this is not a moment uh, for us to pat ourselves on the back uh, and say, look at what a great job we're doing. Uh, it is simply a way of turning over to the community, to turning over to this church body and say, I am choosing to give this up and to replace it with trying to follow God and look more and more like the image of Christ in our world today. And so during this time of worship, if you'd like to go and participate in that, you can do that. You can also do that uh, in secret uh, after service is over and after people have left, uh, you can return back uh, and do that. And it'll be set up over the next couple of weeks and you can do that throughout this entire series as well. Here in a moment, we're going to continue singing and I'd like to invite you uh, while we sing to think about who this Christ is. The Christ who doesn't come conquering, but the Christ who comes to face the sin and evil in our lives. The Christ who goes to the cross. The Christ who is willing to give up everything so that we can have relationship with God. While we worship, if you'd like to come and receive the gift of baptism, please come, and uh, I'd love to visit with you during that time. Would you please stand and join us for worship?